emerging from the economy of the Industrial Revolution. An economy confined to and limited by the Earth's physical resources into the economy in mind, in which there are no bounds on human imagination and the freedom to create is the most precious natural resource. Welcome to the Soul of Enterprise, Business and the Knowledge Economy, sponsored by SAGE, energizing business builders around the world through the imagination of our people and the power of technology. I'm Ron Baker, along with my good friend and Verisage Institute colleague, co-host, Ed Kless. And Ed, today we are so honored. We have Professor Thomas Hazlett on the show. He's uh, the um, He holds the H.H. McAuley Endowed Chair of in economics at Clemson University, conducts research in the field of law and economics, specializing in the information economy, so it's perfect for the uh, theme of this show. And he w- used to be the chief economist of the Federal Communications Commission, 1991 and 92. He was a resident scholar at the American Enterprise Institute, a senior fellow of the Manhattan Institute. He's taught at California U- University of California, Davis, and Columbia University, the Wharton School, George Mason University, I could go on and on. He's got an incredible resume, but we want to kind of focus on his latest book, The Political Spectrum, The Tumultuous Liberation of Wireless Technology from Herbert Hoover to the Smartphone, which was published in 2017. It's just a fantastic book. Welcome, Professor Hazlett, to the Soul of Enterprise. (laughs) Thanks for that wonderful introduction. (laughs) <laughs> well, thank you for doing this. I, I, I have to ask you right out of the gate, um, I, I was looking at your Wikipedia page, and you were a child actor, <laughs> and you appeared on some pretty interesting shows. Can you give us a rundown? Well, I grew up in Los Angeles, and uh, my mother had, uh, she had come from a theatrical family in New York, actually, but uh, there's not much to say. I, yeah, as a teenager, I was in some commercials and, uh, you know, TV shows and, and movies, and, uh, and and I did not catch the bug, and so uh, when I was, you know, in college years, I uh, sort of shifted around, and uh, I, I don't, uh, I don't know, I, I don't think Hollywood missed me. <laughs> <laughs> I, I haven't well, heard. I, was, I haven't heard that they have. Let's leave it there. Well, I was cracking up because you you were in McHale's Navy and the Monkeys and the Land of the Giants. I thought that was pretty funny. But uh, the other thing I found interesting was you were you auditioned to join the Bolshoi Ballet in Hollywood in 1962, and I guess were was reject were rejected, <laughs> and you got into economics instead. <laughs> Well, when I yeah, when I tried out, uh, I actually remember the day because it was a terrible Dodgers game on the radio that I was trying to listen to, and it was uh, it still tra- traumatizes me to this to this moment. But uh, uh, yeah, no, there weren't that many uh, you know boys my age who were, who were dancing, and I, I wasn't that great, and I didn't uh, you know didn't do ballet very well, and so that's probably had something to do with their choice not to uh, to cast me in their in, in their troupe, but. Uh, uh, I, I did uh, I did take dance lessons for for several years, and it actually was quite enjoyable looking back on it. I didn't appreciate it uh, uh, for you know for how much fun it was, but it was great exercise, and uh, uh, it was uh, it was fun. 
That's fantastic. Well, look, I'm glad you studied economics because you've made some major contributions to our thinking. Uh, and I just kind of, I'm so excited to dive into your book, Thomas, The Political Spectrum, which I just think is absolutely brilliant. I read it uh, earlier this year and I just couldn't put it down. I mean, it's just so, it's such a comprehensive history and there's so much in there. But I'll just start with something, a real basic question, just to ground everybody. You write that no natural resource is more critical to the 21st century than the radio spectrum. Why? We live in a wireless age, and there's a good reason for it. Communications uh, are extremely productive, certainly in demand. You can see the explosion of uh, social media broadly construed, not just Google and Facebook, but uh, we are connecting in ways that are fantastically important, and we really have just hit the tip of the iceberg. Notice, for example, that crime rates have fallen rather pronounced. You can see it in the data. You can get you know statistically significant uh, uh, results when you when you run the numbers. Crime rates have gone down with cell phones. Uh, health applications are now coming in in a very major way to improve people's well-being directly. Uh, we have whole sectors now that are being created. Uh, because the platform is with us, through Radio Spectrum, we have Lyft and Uber, which now have revenues that are a multiple of all the taxi revenues in the country. So a new sector is created really since, since 2010 because of ubiquitous cell phone use. This all goes through Radio Spectrum. And, of course, we're going through generations of technology. We're now at 4G, fourth generation, headed to 5G. And there has to be spectrum out there for these devices to uh, to connect and uh, it's a very big economic issue and of course a huge political issue and and thomas you cite cooper's law which is the wireless traffic doubling roughly every two years and and then you wrote this we enjoy one trillion times the wireless capacity of networks than a century ago did i read that right <laughs> yes, I mean you did, and it, you know when you think about it, it's not—it's <laughs> not that surprising. That is to say, hundred years ago, you know, how many people were using wireless and for what? And today, you know, how are we using wireless? I mean, the fact you can watch a video, you know, moving those bits through space, uh, high definition, you know, landing on your your home screen or a, a laptop computer or your your cell phone. You know, that's, of course, something that was not around 100 years ago on the capacity that's been put in place for that. Uh, you know, if you estimate it, it's, it's obviously a rough calculation, but within the industry, uh, that's a rule of thumb. It, uh, it doubles, I think, about every 30 months. Uh, those are, the, again, the rough calculations, and, and that gives you, you know, this trillion-fold increase. But every time that people argue for FCC regulation, net neutrality, which I know Ed will talk to you about, the, the, the major argument comes out, well, the spectrum is scarce, and therefore we need government regulation to allocate it. How can it be scarce if it's grown a millionfold? Uh, well, that's a great question. You know, somebody should write a book on that. So, yeah, so there is a... Um, uh, sort of a long discussion that can take place on that, but here's the, you know, the short version. There is scarcity in the sense of we'd like to have more bandwidth and be able to use that extra capacity, so to speak, without 
doing anything else without building new radios or networks or base stations and so forth. Um, and uh, so in a sense, there is scarcity. People are willing to pay, for example, to get access to prime radio waves. So that's an economic factor. But your, the second half of your statement, which, which is a fair representation uh, of, of what has often been argued, that, well, if, you know, if it's scarce, then the government has to regulate it. That is uh, not a logical uh, corollary. That is to say, because you have this economic scarcity, uh, the fact that uh, there have to be decisions about if we're going to do more of this kind of service, maybe we have to do less of something else. There has to be a way to coordinate between conflicting applications. That does not have to be run by the government, even though back in the early days of radio and with the advent of radio regulation in the 1927 Radio Act, the brainchild of Herbert Hoover, uh, that in fact the argument was that the government had to be basically the central spectrum allocator that markets uh, with decentralized players having their own frequencies, they couldn't, you couldn't have businesses or individuals make deals and and coordinate the activity uh, without uh, the central planning uh, that came through administrative allocation. And so we shifted to a system that, in in essence, uh, all the major decisions about how to use these airways have to run through a regulator. And new applications, uh, any kind of extra competition, those have to obtain public interest determinations by, you know, bureaucrats at an agency. And that whole process, not just because of the, the slow pace of, you know, government administrative process, but also because of the incentives of incumbent business interests to resist uh, additional competition, to, to fend off the entrance by... Um, dealing with the regulators and uh, piling into the system uh, to slow roll the, the potential uh, rivals, uh, it, it turns out not to be the best way uh, to regulate airwaves. And, and the, the trick on all this is as much damage as has been done uh, under the, the central allocation system from the 1927 Act, there has been a very substantial uh, and, and important deregulation or liberalization, if you will, and the pretty amazing new stuff that we have today in our pockets and enjoy in the wireless space uh, so so widely, that really comes as a result of the fact that we've shifted those decisions about how to use scarce airways. We've shifted those uh, to a very large extent to the market, to competitors, uh, carriers that, that get rights to use bandwidth and have economic incentives to, you know, to build a substantial infrastructure to complement the airwaves, and then how, having innovators, whether it be, you know, Apple or Google or, or Samsung uh, or, or the myriad applications that ride on their, on their devices, that to, to have them dealing with customers and carriers without micromanagement by the central regulator. So that has been a great experiment. The the shortfall there is that we just haven't gone nearly far enough. Most spectrum is, is allocated the way we were doing it starting in 1927, and we, we really sacrifice enormous new possibilities as we look forward uh, for all the, uh, the amazing technological advance that can go through wireless and can you know, be ubiquitous through society, untethered to wires. We, we give up so much of that by, by having this older regime still in place. Right. I think you call it the wise man theory of regulation, the idea that 
this group of five people in the FCC can determine what's in the public interest. But w- the the market, the price mechanism allocates scarce resources all the time, and it does it much more efficiently and effectively than, say, government. If central planning taught us anything, it taught us that. And and then the other line you, you wrote that I love, you say, it, it's not the physics of the radio waves, but the economics of public choice that really... <laughs> <laughs> that really help you understand this this allocation process. Well, yeah, as an economist, you might you might think I'd say that uh, we do look at you know these social uh, games and coordination problems uh, through our own lenses. Uh, but uh, and and to be clear, of course, uh, you know the the physics, uh, uh, the the amazing advances, and the ingenuity that's been brought to the market by radio frequency engineers, uh, many of whom become great entrepreneurs uh, uh, with companies like Qualcomm, uh, uh, for example, that have advanced so much uh, of our possibilities uh, and bringing great progress to the marketplace. Uh, you know, they've looked at it from a very technical perspective, and that's certainly um, uh, absolutely fundamental to our progress. But the the understanding of the whole system and really how you can optimize the use of these great technologies, that gets you right to economics. And when you see the regulatory system and how it has, in essence, taken over the economics with political determinations, uh, that, that's what I call the political spectrum. And it has led to some you know, very severe uh, constraints on the you know the opportunities that uh, would otherwise be available, and as I say, we're we're also we're also learning something over time. We're getting a little better, inch by inch. We have liberalized that and opened these markets, and it hasn't just happened in the U.S. but around the world. The opportunities have been so great, and the constraints have been so expensive uh, that it, you know, in some respects, the dam has broken. But uh, sure. we, we've got a lot farther to go. Excellent. Well, I, we can't wait to unpack some of that because this this whole book is kind of the history of how the FCC delays some of these technologies. But Thomas, we're up against our first break. And folks, we'd like to remind you, if you want to get a hold of Ed or myself, send us an email at asktsoe at verisage.com. And now we want to hear from our sponsor, Leading Results. Become our friend on Facebook. Post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline. Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice America. Is your website just a brochure or is it your best salesperson? If your site is not the best lead generation tool you have, we should talk. We are leading results. We build websites and marketing programs that impact your bottom line. Using HubSpot or WordPress, we'll create a website and supporting marketing program that gets your business found, converts web visitors to leads, and provides clear tracking on what is and is not working. Learn about our team and approach to your success. Visit leadingresults.com slash TSOE to find out more. Have you ever read a book that changed your life? I sure have. But have you ever read a book where the forward changed your life? Me neither. Hello, I'm Greg Kite. I wrote the forward to Ron Baker and Ed Kless's new ebook, The Soul of Enterprise, Dialogues on Business and the Knowledge Economy. 
The value of this book is found entirely in its forward. So when you buy it, think of it as buying the forward and getting the rest of the book for free. Available now for download exclusively on Amazon.com. We're always talking business. Talk to an expert. Call now, toll free, 866-472-5790. That's 866-472-5790. Voice America Business Network. You are tuned into The Soul of Enterprise with Ron Baker and Ed Klass. To find out more about our show, visit us on the web at thesoulofenterprise.com. You can also chat with us on Twitter using hashtag AskTSOE. Now, back to The Soul of Enterprise. And we're back on The Soul of Enterprise with Professor Thomas Hazlett, the Hugh H. McCauley Endowed Professor of Economics at Clemson. And, Professor, only because you brought it up at your Cato talk, which you gave recently, I figured I would ask uh, you about this. Um, How's your NCAA bracket doing? (laughs) (laughs) Well... (laughs) Well, I'm at Clemson, so we are playing tonight. But uh, we're yes, fine. you I'm are. Uh, Unfortunately, I'm a graduate of UCLA, and we lost in the plan. <laughs> well, and, so, and being yeah. at, at George Mason, I, 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 I've done a, a bracket in the past. I didn't do one this year where I tried to pick the most uh, free market college to and and have them go all the way. So it was it was easy in 2006 when it was Mason. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, that was a great year for Mason. I, actually, I was on the faculty. That was my first year there, and uh, that was quite something. That was terrific. And of course, they lost their coach. Uh, he was a great coach uh, to Miami as a result of that. And that's one of the problems you have with them being an up and coming program. Yeah, well, well, we'll have to do another show on on the the the, the benefits of of the NCAA and whether we should get rid of the, rid of that as a, a and go to a more market based system for basketball minor leagues. But anyway, um, I wanted to turn the attention to to net neutrality, something I know you've written extensively about as well. And one question I had for you on this is the when when whenever both sides talk about this, it's a frequent metaphor that they use either internet connection as road system or package delivery service. And I'm wondering, do you think that that's a good metaphor? And if if so, why? And if if not, why not? Uh, it's like you know, like a lot of metaphors, it has some uh, you know germ of truth in it. Uh, and then you got to be careful. You got to be careful about the differences. And in fact, I'll note that the Wall Street Journal. Uh, website has a video that I was uh, quite quite amazed. It's an explainer on net neutrality, and they say um, that the uh, Federal Express delivery system takes Amazon packages and treats them all alike, and you know has the same service, and, and they don't uh, discriminate. And net neutrality is just like that, uh, just being the same rules applied to telecommunications providers. And that is absolutely false. Uh, That is to say, there is no regulation telling uh, Federal Express that it has to be non-discriminatory and have what are called common carrier treatment of the packages it it delivers. It certainly has different uh, rules and prices for different types of service. Everybody understands that. Some people get confused that that net neutrality would or common carriage would eliminate that. But the, the, the trick on, on, on this is that Federal Express 
claims that they are a common carrier. They are not a regulated common carrier. In fact, the reason they say they're a common carrier is they tell the U.S. government, we're not going to police the packages. If somebody has liability for shipping something they're not supposed to ship, you go after the customer. Don't come after us. And, and if you go to the website of UPS, their direct competitor in, in package delivery, UPS explicitly says, we are not a common carrier. That is to say the companies get to choose the business model. And that's worked very well in some areas, like package delivery, where you do get a vibrant market. You'll notice that you don't have a whole bunch of package delivery systems. It's a fairly small market with fairly small choices. Some people would say, well, it's different in, in telecommunications because you don't have a lot of choices, two, three. Um, uh, of course, now we have four nationwide wireless networks, and we do get uh, broadband Internet from the wireless, uh, albeit generally at lower speeds and fixed line. Uh, but that actually does not, uh, does not change the argument that having competition amongst business models and allowing uh, markets and consumers and different approaches by the firms cast out some of the questions about uh, pricing rules and uh, uh, different kinds of questions about neutrality is not a better system. And I, if you review the long history of net neutrality, and there is a long history in, in the sense of common carrier rules applied by the Federal Communications Commission to, to, to companies like AT&T, you, you come away pretty, uh, pretty skeptical that there's any simple rule to apply that's going to improve things for customers by enforcing net neutrality. And you do uh, respect the fact that historically we've actually had to move away from common carrier rules to get the Internet. There's no question that there was a relaxation in the 70s, 80s, 90s uh, across administrations of different parties that welcomed uh, the new information services and explicitly exempted uh, things like broadband Internet from the old common carrier rules that were applied to telephone companies. And only because of that deregulation process do we get the, uh, the AOLs and the voiceover Internet services that we have today that the regulators actually are quite aware of that and quite explicit about uh, noting that historically. Yeah, and whenever that analogy comes up, I'm, I'm, it makes me crazy. So I'm, uh, thanks for your answer because that's that's along the lines of what I was thinking too. Is that that it it makes it simple to understand, but it's really a kind of a far off analogy because of all of the some of the things that you mentioned, and not to, the least of which is innovation. You know, Amazon starts delivering packages by drone. All of a sudden, all right, well, where does that fit in, right? <laughs> you know, can they do that? Uh, whenever net neutrality um, emerges, I always get two two images come into my mind. And I want to share them with you. One is you know, two different two tennis players on different courts trying to play one another because that that that's what seems to be the dialogue. You know, the pro videos say one thing, the anti videos say another, and they're not talking the same language at all. Um, and I'm just wondering if you if you could address that for a little bit. Well, yeah, there's uh, a lot of disappointment to some of us who have uh, you know participated in the you know in the scholarship on this over the years. And uh, certainly it's a politically charged issue. And, you know, people do uh, have passionate beliefs, and they certainly um, will launch into very, uh, very strong uh, uh, criticisms, if you will, attacks. Um, you know, read, the, read any uh, sort of uncensored comments section online if you want to get a taste of this. And, um, it, you know, so, so yes, I'm, of course, I'm disappointed that some of the... Um, 
that in some cases you you really do uh, have a, have a difficult time getting a good discussion. Now, having said that, of course, you know, amongst scholars, law professors, economists, and and regulators, in fact. Um, there are lots of good discussions that have taken place over the years, and even though people may disagree on some of the issues, uh, there there actually has been quite a bit of consensus about uh, the need to have a different regulatory system for the internet. Now we, you know, we've run up against that. And of course, in 2015, we got rules that reprise the common carrier so-called Title II rules that came into the. Uh, Communications Act of 1934 were, were used for decades to police AT&T, the Ma Bell telephone monopoly. And so it's striking to hear people say, well, we need these rules in place now to guard us against the broadband uh, carriers and operators of today, when in fact, of course, the most famous thing that happened in the whole history of AT&T, other than its 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 position for decades is the classic private sector monopoly. The, the most remarkable thing that happened is that in the 1970s, the United States Department of Justice Antitrust Division filed a massive lawsuit alleging that AT&T had committed anti-competitive acts to monopolize the market. This is a company that's thoroughly regulated by common carrier <laughs> rules. And at the end of that process, a decade later, of course, AT&T is, is split up, divested, uh, because it was thought that the regulations did not work, that you had to have structural separation. Of course, there were some more rules that came down to, you know, to police part of, part of what came out of it. But the point is that the experiment was judged a failure. Common carrier rules were not sufficient to protect the public. And so we really need to go in the direction of promoting competition and getting more market forces in there. To some extent, of course, we've gone that way. And the, you know, the best news is that there's no longer a single monopoly telecommunications provider. We do have cable operators going head-to-head, and in some cases, we also can use uh, additional broadband service providers. We certainly, as I said, have four nationwide wireless companies. Satellite plays some role as technology improves. Satellite uh, will hopefully play even a larger role in, in competing in the marketplace. And there should be, through spectrum policies that are in, increasingly relaxed, more and more opportunity, particularly with 5G, the fantastic fifth generation, for, for very high-speed delivery of very wide bandwidth. Uh, you will, we will, as a society, have an opportunity to do much, much better. But it's not going to come through the old-style regulation, in my opinion. No, absolutely not. Well, we're up against our next break here, and I want to remind our audience that you can get a hold of Ron or myself by sending an email to asktsoe at verisage.com. That'll go to both Ron and myself. You can also visit our website, thesoulofenterprise.com, where we post full show notes, including this one with Professor Hazlett, as well as our previous shows, and then previews of upcoming shows also appear on that website as well. But right now, a word from our sponsor, Abacus next. The future of online TV is here. View exclusive content from your favorite talk radio hosts and new programs that you can't see anywhere else. Visit voiceamerica.tv today. 
Results CRM, the award-winning Abacus Next product, is a customer relationship management solution that will automate your business processes, streamline workflows, and deliver consistent results. Cloud-enabled to provide access to your users anytime from anywhere. Grow your business in 2018 with the number one QuickBooks CRM. To learn more about Results CRM, visit ResultsCRM.com. Clouds come in all shapes and sizes, and the Abacus Private Cloud is the perfect fit. Abacus Cloud enables all the desktop apps you know and love while providing unparalleled security to your business. Cloud functionality gives you the flexibility to work where you want, when you want, and from any device you want. Don't waste countless hours managing IT. Take back your time. Learn more at abacusnext.com. Have you ever read a book that changed your life? I sure have. But have you ever read a book where the forward changed your life? Me neither. Hello, I'm Greg Kite. I wrote the forward to Ron Baker and Ed Kless's new ebook, The Soul of Enterprise, Dialogues on Business and the Knowledge Economy. The value of this book is found entirely in its forward. So when you buy it, think of it as buying the forward and getting the rest of the book for free. Available now for download exclusively on Amazon.com. From the boardroom to you, Voice America Business Network. You are tuned into The Soul of Enterprise with Ron Baker and Ed Class. To find out more about our show, visit us on the web at thesoulofenterprise.com. You can also chat with us on Twitter using hashtag AskTSOE. Now, back to The Soul of Enterprise. Well, welcome back, everybody. We're here with Professor Thomas Hazlett, great economist, uh, talking about the radio spectrum and his book, The Political Spectrum. And Thomas, I wanted to ask you, you know, reading your book, it's just a story, a chronicle of delays that the FCC has imposed on cable TV, satellite TV and radio, FM radio, and cellular telephones. I, I'll just ask you about one of those. Can you tell the story of Edwin Howard Armstrong? Well, it's a wonderful story, uh, although it ends in tragedy. He uh, was one of the great inventors of the 20th century and um, early uh, graduate in, uh, in, in radio technology, physics at Columbia University, became a professor there his whole life and Actually, he referred to himself as Major Edwin Howard Armstrong because he served in both world wars with the U.S. Army and did radio. And uh, at any rate, he, he came up, he was huge, and in, in fact, the largest shareholder in RCA in the 1920s with his patents for, he had sold his patents for AM. But then he came up with a better technology about 1933, FM radio, and he had to get permission, Spectrum from the FCC for that technology to be enjoyed by the public. And it took him years. The FCC was slow. They finally authorized and allowed him by 1941 to sell 500,000 radios. And in the Northeast United States, it was a big hit. But then, of course, World War II comes and all civilian production stops. At the end of the war, the FCC comes back. And uh, long story short, they just uproot the entire band, make Every radio, and these were fifteen in today's dollars, fifteen hundred dollar radios, hmm. making everyone obsolete. And they they reassigned Spectrum today. We we know the FM band today at eighty eight to one hundred eight, 
megahertz. It, it, it was at 42 to 50 in that period. Anyway, it completely destroyed the technology. By the time they got new technology, uh, Armstrong works on that, uh, they can't sell radios because it's, it's, it's been so crushing for the, for the early adopters. And in 1954, he actually commits suicide. And, and, and it wasn't, of course, until the 1960s when FM was essentially freed to compete with AM, and within a very short number of years, it totally dominates because of its superior high-fidelity quality. And those are the kinds of advances that are, that are literally buried for decades. Yes. Um, so, so there are these horror stories, and I have a whole section of my book called Silence of the Entrance. But, you know, I will say that it has gotten somewhat better. It is easier today to get a technology into the market. And, of course, the other side of that is when, in about 2005, a company in Cupertino, California, wants to make a better cell phone uh, that does become the iconic consumer device of this century. Apple does not have to go to ask permission from the government. They went to the carriers that by this point had liberal rights in licenses that had been issued and were able to use new devices, new radios, new iPhones, and allocate spectrum in the market to that new innovation. And so, the, you know, to this point, the rest is history. Is it fair to say that if net neutrality rules had been in place in 2007, the iPhone could not have been marketed? I think that's the iPhone uh, Apple position because, of course, it was introduced uh, under uh, a very structured business model, uh, vertically structured, and this is what net neutrality is supposed to stop, this uh, connection between a, a basic platform and the applications and services that ride over that platform. And indeed, um, the iPhone business model was frontally attacked by advocates, champions of net neutrality. I talk about this in the book. Uh, they said that this was, you know, the iPhone is iPhoney. It's it's not good for customers. It had an exclusive, Apple had an exclusive deal set up to start uh, to launch their service with AT&T in the United States. And um, they, of course, had this vertical link. If you want content for your iPhone, you go to iTunes. And then soon they had the App Store, Apple App Store. And these linkages are thought to be violations of neutrality. In some sense, of course, they are, but it's business model competition. Uh, this was so wildly popular that the, the great consumer devices at the time, made by Nokia and BlackBerry, uh, were, were basically uh, uh, you know, rendered moot, just completely dominated in the market, and a new an entirely new ecosystem was born, and that is the Google-sponsored Android. So that operating system and that ecosystem uh, through Google Play and, and uh, the Android uh, device world has become a, um, uh, an excellent competitor to Apple, driving innovation, driving consumer choice, and allowing you know vast new contributions to social welfare. It's just amazing how it was just 2007 when we got that first iPhone. Right. You know, I know you quote George Gilder a couple of different places in your book, and we're kind of acolytes of him, but you know, he's got this line, creativity always takes us by surprise, otherwise we wouldn't need it and socialism would work. I mean, it just seems like the FCC thinks that they can spot technologies, but they're only looking at a picture, and yet humans are videos. You know, we're constantly moving and innovating and creating. Um, Want to switch to your your 
in your book, uh, switch to television for a minute, because, and this to me is a spoiler alert for anybody out there. Thomas, I have to tell you, this is the funniest thing in your book. I mean, I laughed my back end off. Uh, this is the greatest story. You talk about the most famous speech ever given by an American regulator in Las Vegas on May 9th, 1961, the FCC chairman, Newton Norman Minow. Can you explain that story? The vast wasteland. Television was, of course, the, the rage at the time. There was the, uh, the whole um, social switch uh, with wide implications, and the chairman of the regulatory body goes to talk to the National Association of Broadcasters, the industry the executives uh, in the television business, and, and, and says, look, uh, I challenge you to sit down in front of the TV set and watch a day's worth of programming. You will be horrified by what you see. You will conclude that it is a vast wasteland. And he says to the industry, you know, chagrined and quiet, uh, that there's a new sheriff in town, and there's going to be real changes in Washington when they come up for license renewal because they are not using their licenses in the public interest, giving us such low-quality content. In fact, that was a hugely popular speech, ended up on front pages of newspapers, and he got a, uh, the chairman of the FCC got a Peabody Award, general reserved for journalists. And, and uh, to this day, I mean, there, there's, there's all kinds of positive uh, commentary on, on how great it was to stand up to the industry. In, in fact, what happens is that the chairman goes back to Washington and carries the water for the industry because the key regulatory decision, by the way, there, were, there was nothing new done on license renewal. He had promised new forms and it was going to be tough to get through. That just doesn't happen. What happens is that the new competitor rising up to try to challenge the vast wasteland via television over wires Right. suppressed. Rules are laid out in very Byzantine fashion to actually stop cable TV. And in rulings in 62, in 65, and 66, 68, a whole series, in fact, we, we set cable TV back about 15 years until a deregulation in the 1970s uh, unleashes, you know, basically the wiring of America by the early 1980s. And then you get these unregulated networks and you actually get news and information programming. You get public affairs. This was the old rationale for the regulatory system and for blocking cable. But you finally get C-SPAN and CNN. And, of course, later CNBC and MSNBC and Fox News and Bloomberg and, you know, BBC America. You get all kinds of informational programming, let alone sports and entertainment, movie channels and reality TV and, 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 and 900 separate channels. That comes through the deregulated cable TV medium, and it was blocked to protect broadcasters at the very instant that the regulators had decided that what they had done there and what the television executives had done had actually created something terrible, a wasteland. The, I know, didn't you equate them to drug dealers? But, but a TV show that debuted in 1964 got back at him. Can you explain that story? Because this is the part that cracks me up. Yeah, and I, it's actually quite interesting because, of course, the speech is, you know, the, by all reports, uh, uh, there was stunned silence from the, uh, the you know, these TV executives were being lectured like they were small, small children. And they don't. 
they don't, of course, fight back directly. And indeed, they don't have to fight back. They, you know, their lobbyists are were, were good. At, as I say, there was nothing done other than helping them to attack the the, 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 merge, the emerging rivals. So they, they were fine. I mean, they understood. They were being embarrassed a little bit. And the passive-aggressive response is that in 1964, when CBS launches a show called Gilligan's Island, uh, about a little uh, party on a, on a cruise that ends up shipwrecked uh, on a tropical island, uh, the, uh, uh, the shipwreck is called the USS Minnow. That was the name of the boat, and uh, that, was the, you know, that, was, that was the passive-aggressive response by the TV industry. Got a big chuckle out of that. The SS Minnow, that, that was such a great story. And boy, if anything proves the vast wasteland, it's probably Gilligan's Island. But, you, you know, you, you talk about 1961, Cox Cable in San Diego started offering, you know, cable TV service. I think at like five fifty a month back then. And it, it, it just seems like the FCC stalled cable TV for, like you say, 15 years or whatever it was until we started deregulating Carter years. Um, they even squashed the Dumont network in 1955, didn't they? I mean, they, and, and that, they had the honeymooners for crying out loud. Well, Dumont was a great innovator in technology on the one side and programming on the other. And, uh, there was a major, uh, regulatory proceeding that culminated in the 1952 TV allocation table that set up essentially the nationwide broadcast license grid in Dumont protested bitterly that there had to be a more competitive licensing scheme. Otherwise, Dumont as the fourth network would go by the wayside. They couldn't reach a national audience in enough households to get the advertising support to continue competing with quality programming. And sure enough, uh, the FCC listening not to Dumont, the upstart entrant, but to CBS, the more powerful incumbent, took the CBS plan, and boom, Dumont was right. Three years later, the Dumont network goes silent. And it wasn't until 31 years later, by the way, that we got that fourth national network again. Of course, that was Fox, but the only reason you got additional networks, and we have two of Mundo and some other ones now today, uh, the only reason you got additional broadcast networks is finally cable was freed up, and cable... Uh, retransmission of UHF signals, uh, the TV signals that uh, tended to be uh, poor uh, reception quality. Uh, they're, they're retransmitted, and they lose that uh, disadvantage to VHF, the stronger signals. And that was a product, as I've already mentioned, the, the fact that there was cable there in 1986, that's totally a product of deregulation. So the, the, the liberalization of the rules is hugely important in giving us the more competitive environment and uh, the great progress in terms of content, even today, you look uh, to see how the, you know, the unregulated internet is just creating a golden era along with cable and satellite transmission, taking us way past the old broadcasting grid. This is the golden era for Hollywood. I mean, production and content have never been as as, as rich, as varied, and as prosperous uh, as as they are today. Yeah, that's for sure. I mean, and, and the delay, like you said before, in cellular technology, I mean, this was something that was introduced back in 1945, and we didn't start getting cellular phones until, what was it, the late 80s? I mean, it just, I think you had written a paper that the delay of that cost consumers about $100 billion. Is that right? 
Yeah, that was not. Yeah, I was. I was citing uh, research that had been done, and that's on a very conservative assumption that there was basically just a one decade lag. It, it's difficult to know where the technologies would have been 40s, 50s, 60s. Certainly, by the 70s, you're getting much more sophisticated computer technology to help drive. Uh, the success of, of cellular that uh, obviously takes a lot of computing power. But the idea was that in 1945, literally, there's a Saturday Evening Post interview with the FCC chairman who's bragging that this new cellular system has been developed at Bell Labs, and uh, they are you know, sure that they, they can get the licenses out in just a few years, and this is going to be revolutionary. That's 1945. And, of course, the, the FCC... Uh, as I like to say, sprang into action and opened up a proceeding in 1968. And there are years and years go by where they just didn't, you know, AT&T was the big monopoly in the market. And they, they didn't, you know, they, they weren't that interested. They had the technology through Bell Labs and they, they had a little bit of it. You know, they, they sponsored the research. But, the, you know, having a new system that's going to cannibalize their existing revenues was, uh, was not a big motivator for them, so they didn't push very hard. And the regulators, they always assumed that cellular would be uh, just really uh, a 1% service. It was going to be for, for very wealthy individuals and maybe salespeople would, would want a, a car phone. It was, never, it was never considered a priority and it was never taken, even in the 1980s when the licenses finally are going out. The FCC is clearly the opinion that this is going to be a plaything for the rich, as one commissioner called it. So it was, like you mentioned a moment ago, yes, uh, creativity is always a surprise, and the regulators are basically the last to find out where the market wants to go. Right, right. Yeah, it reminds me of uh, Gilder's other line that the, the the dog is always the politician's best friend. It's always yesterday's technology. But you know, like you say, perverse regulatory consequences mean never having to say you're sorry. So, But unfortunately, Thomas, we're up against a break. And folks, I'd like to remind you, if you want to contact Ed or myself, send us an email to asktsoe at verisage.com. And now we want to hear from our sponsor, Sage. Follow us on Twitter at VoiceAmericaTRN. Get the lowdown on guests, new shows, and your favorites. That's VoiceAmericaTRN. Wherever your business is headed, Sage has the cloud solution you need to enable mobile accounting and simplify financial management. Discover how moving your financial data and accounting processes to the cloud can transform your business. Cloud accounting software from Sage can help you make better decisions, drive faster responses, and gain greater control. That's cloud accounting for the journey. For more information, visit sage.com forward slash US forward slash SOE. There is no blueprint for running the perfect firm. No way to know the challenges you'll face. But your journey does not have to be an odyssey. Experience what it is like for every part of your firm to be connected. Experience a practice management tool where everything is just a click away. Experience Office Tools. To learn more, visit officetools.com. Have you ever read a book that changed your life? I sure have. But have you ever read a book where the forward changed your life? Me neither. Hello, I'm Greg Kite. I wrote the forward to Ron Baker and Ed Kless's new ebook, The Solemn Enterprise, Dialogues on Business and the Knowledge Economy. 
The value of this book is found entirely in its foreword. So when you buy it, think of it as buying the foreword and getting the rest of the book for free. Available now for download exclusively on Amazon.com. When it comes to business, you'll find the experts here. Voice America Business Network. You are tuned into The Soul of Enterprise with Ron Baker and Ed Klass. To find out more about our show, visit us on the web at thesoulofenterprise.com. You can also chat with us on Twitter using hashtag AskTSOE. Now, back to The Soul of Enterprise. And here we are back on The Soul of Enterprise with Professor Thomas Hazlett. Uh, Thomas, I want to, to ask you, uh, uh, as I was, was preparing for this, I had a thought. Is it too far-fetched to say that the composition of the FCC is economically nearly as important as the composition of the Supreme Court? Oh, wow. Um, Yeah, uh, the Supreme Court is pretty important, so uh, I might not go all the way with that, but uh, there's certainly, you know, a huge sector, and the growing sector in terms of communications and information technology that... Uh, really can go up or down with the fortunes uh, dictated by regulators at the FCC. So I, I think you're getting pretty close to it there. Yeah, I'm, I'm just wondering if in future presidential races we're going to be, you know, questions about well, who you're going to nominate to the FCC like we hear about Supreme Court nominees now. Well, that is interesting because, of course, these uh, issues and, uh, you know, you mentioned uh, network neutrality have become uh, hot-button issues. And uh, it's it is it is frustrating that there there isn't more you know calm reasoned uh, and deep discussion of some of the topics. But at at a political level, you can certainly see that that you know that could make it its way. Sometimes there has been discussion in previous uh, presidential contests about things like uh, the fairness doctrine or the V chip. If you remember that from about twenty years ago, sure, uh, yeah, give yeah parents a break on on program. Uh, monitoring for their kids uh but uh you know there ha- there have been some of those issues maybe it will be more in the future and uh, uh, at one level i certainly would welcome that another level you, you know you might wince to see what comes out <laughs> that's true um your I, I guess former colleague brian kaplan has uh, uh coined the term the political touring test i don't know if you've heard him mention that to where it is it, it's a challenge for you to argue for or against something that uh, they make the best case for your opponent, so that they, so you, you would actually think that they, or they would think that you agree with them. So I'm gonna, the question I'll have for you, I'm gonna turn it on you and say, what is your best argument in favor of net neutrality? So yeah, that and, and it's you know, Brian's great. That's uh, that is a good way to think about it. And uh, you know, if you're gonna be serious about the, certainly some of the policy discussion, you should spend some time. Uh, considering what, what, what the best arguments are. So I, I would say that uh, if you look at uh, the, the way we, we have historically regulated the problem addressed by net neutrality, it's actually called a, a, a problem called vertical foreclosure, where uh, a firm that has some influence in, in, in a given market, like, say, uh, broadband access, uh, the ISP service, uh, goes into a complementary market like content or applications and uses the market power to, uh, for distortionary effect and, uh, 
under uh, under special circumstances you can actually get uh, you can you can you can get a, a higher profit out of that. In, in most circumstances, no. Anyway, that those those kinds of those kinds of uh, competitive issues have been historically regulated by antitrust rules. And the uh, argument for net neutrality would be that it's too expensive to litigate under antitrust rules, that the antitrust rules do not effectively combat vertical foreclosure. And so I think that that is an argument. And in fact, uh, there have been some instances in terms of giving competitors in the cable market access to programming owned by cable companies. There have been some rules that have been put put in place in the 1992 Cable Act, for example, and I'm not opposed to all of those rules. So that would be a discussion that I think, uh, you know, some people have had that, that's fruitful. Now, I don't end up on that side, but I can see that you could make an argument uh, like that. And I think some people who kn- know the law and economics of this pretty well have made that argument. Sure. We, and we've got about three minutes left. I just wanted to, to ask you about this. I've uh, read a smattering of articles that, you know, begin with the, the, the headline, now that net neutrality is dead, which, you know, of course, is a clear overstatement, right? Because uh, it's not like all regulation is dead. But the overwhelming theme with some of these articles, including the New York Times and Forbes and all this stuff was was really little to nothing, Right and and in the short term, and then of course we don't know in the long term. Have you seen any po- early positive or early negative results from the reclassification? Uh, well, I, uh, yes and no. I mean, the, the problem you have as an economist looking at the marketplace, we've had so many gyrations on policy over the last decade. And uh, 2007, we actually got the first net neutrality rule under the, the George W. Bush uh, FCC. Then those were thrown out, uh, those rules thrown out by the courts. And in 2010, we had another round of rules under the Obama FCC, those thrown out in the 2015. Those rules came in. They were, they withstood uh, two to one. They, they got past the D.C. Circuit. But then, of course, the election and the Trump FCC in uh, 2017 throws those rules out. So we're up and down. It's hard to see a definitive split on that. Now, I've done some empirical work historic, on historic data where the common carrier rules have, have, show, have, have definitely been associated with less investment and less deployment, particularly you can see it in the race between cable modems and, and the old DSL uh, telephone company services, where the latter was for a number of years regulated with common carrier uh, under the common carrier regime, and you've got more uh, development without that, and, and, and this is one of the reasons why cable modem service led the way into the, mar- into the broadband world. Uh, right now, we've, we've gone back and forth so much, it's very tough. Now, you see the analysts will tell you that is to say that the, the, the market experts that the investors often rely on, they, they are definitely of the opinion that doing away with net neutrality is a plus for the broadband end of the, uh, of the Internet, and that the uh, transport networks, i.e. the broadband ISPs, will invest more. So there, there, there is some evidence consistent with, with uh, positive trends with less regulation there, and I can, can tie that to other kinds of uh, evidence that have historically been produced and, and that I and others have written about. So I'm confident that you are going to get very good things uh, with um, uh, a relaxed environment, and you do have antitrust rules, as I just mentioned, as a backup. So that it's still illegal to have uh, anti-competitive vertical foreclosure. So there, there could be uh, cases brought either by the Department of Justice or by 
private litigants on that. And uh, so, sure. like you say, you don't go to total deregulation, and I think it's going to be better at a, at a more liberalized level. Right. Right. Well, thank you, uh, Thomas Hazlett. This has been fascinating. Thank you so much for spending this hour with us. Been a great show. Uh, Ron, what do we got coming up next week? We have Free Rider Friday, Ed. Awesome. Well, I'll see you in 167 hours. All right. This has been the Soul of Enterprise, Business, and Economy. Sponsored by SAVE, energizing business builders around the world through the imagination of our people and the power of technology. Join us next week, folks, Friday at 4 p.m. Eastern. In the meantime, check out our full show notes at thesoulofenterprise.com. We'll link up to Professor Hazlett's books and, and his website where you can find more information about him. You can also contact Ed or myself at asktsoe at verisage.com. Thanks for listening, folks. Have a great weekend.